Hey folks, thanks for tuning in to the Restoration Project's weekly podcast. TRP is a church affiliated with the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship located in Salisbury, Maryland. Our current sermon series is a study on Paul's letter to the Galatians. Even though Paul was addressing theological controversies embedded within a first century Jewish context, we believe that there are some very important modern day applications. Perhaps the most notable is the sufficiency of faith in Jesus for salvation and the unity we find in him. Paul writes, So in Christ Jesus you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized in Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy the episode. Our text for this evening is from the book of Galatians, chapter 5. I'm actually going to reread the three verses that we looked at last week, uh, just for context's sake. This is Galatians, chapter 5, beginning in verse 13. It says, You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love, for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. So I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. I warn you as I did before that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. The word of God for the people of God. So this is week 14 of our sermon series in the book of Galatians. And for the first 12 weeks of that series, we were um, looking at what scholars would call the indicative. When Paul writes these letters, he usually breaks them up unequally into two different parts. The first part is the indicative of Paul's letters. These are the statements that he makes to remind people or to inform people perhaps for the very first time who they are. He's making statements about what the gospel is, what Jesus has done, who the people are as a, as a response or in light of that glorious action of Christ on our behalf. This is the grounding in which he's laying out so that people can be reminded or learn for the first time who they are in Jesus before he moves into the imperative. This is usually the last couple chapters of his letters where he launched launches into the, okay, now in light of all this stuff, now that we know who we are and what Jesus has done, this is what we are to do. He moves from the statements, the, um, the reality of the situation into the, therefore now go and do this. So throughout the first 12 weeks of this sermon series, we have been um, 
learning and exploring the indicative, the statements that Paul is making about the churches at Galatia. He's saying things like Christ gave himself for our sins so he could deliver us from this present evil age. This is in the first uh, few verses of this book where he's setting the context for the gospel and what Jesus has done. He has invaded this time and space to forgive us of our sins, to free us of our sins, and also to allow us to experience not this present evil age, but the age to come. In layman's terms, this would be like us experiencing heaven here and now because of the relationship that we have that's in and through Jesus. This is a statement that Paul is making that is true about the people who are following Jesus. He says things like, no one is made righteous by the works of the law, which for Paul in Galatians does not just mean law-keeping. It means observing circumcision and food laws and Sabbath laws. In other words, becoming a Jew, taking on the marks or the identity markers of Judaism, either in the body or in the actions that you are doing. And what Paul says is no one is made righteous by doing that, but rather they are made righteous through the faithfulness of Jesus. This is a really interesting turn of phrase where he's saying everything that we have is based upon the faithfulness of the Son of God on our behalf in his life and in his death and in his resurrection. It's not about the things that we do, but it's about the things that Christ has done. He goes on to say, we believe in Christ Jesus so that we could be made righteous. In this well-known passage, I've taken the singular and turned it into plural so that we get an idea of what's happening here. But Paul is teaching that we have been crucified with Christ. We no longer live, but Christ lives in us. This is part of Paul's indicative statements, the true realities about the followers of Jesus. We have been crucified with Christ. We no longer live, but Christ lives in and through us. And I don't know if you guys are going about your normal weeks, but there's power in that. And a lot of times, I don't know if I feel that power. And what Paul is doing is before he starts anything else about the things that you are to do, he says, remind yourself, Galatian church, of this truth that we have been crucified with Christ. We no longer live. Christ lives in us. And the life that we live now in the body, we live by faith. Indeed, we live by the faithfulness of God's son who loved us and gave himself for us. And I don't know if we take moments throughout our week where we pause and we reflect on the fact that Christ has loved us and that Christ has given himself for us. And now because of that and because of the faith that we have that's in him, we are changed. We are different. There's power in these words. And and for Paul, he, he keeps moving along this argument because what he is trying to do is to remind the Galatian churches that because of Jesus, they are adopted now as sons and daughters of the Most High God. And it's not because of the things that they are doing. It's because of the declaration that God is making over them because they are believing and trusting in the work of his son. Paul says things like, in the same way that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness, those who believe are children of Abraham. This was groundbreaking stuff. Paul has been pigeonholed as this early first century Jewish misogynist who isn't very relatable, but Paul is kind of going out on the margins here and saying there are people that are now brought into this family that don't have to go through the same rites and rituals that you might think that they do. Jesus and their faith in Jesus is enough. 
This is the whole uh, onus of the book of Galatians is to picture this metaphor of a table and to have people from different ethnicities and backgrounds and gender and race. And they're all sitting here sharing the meal together, united by Jesus. And what Paul is saying is, you Gentile people, you who were once known as sinful people or just sinners, as it says in Galatians chapter two, through Jesus, you're an heir. You're an heir according to the promise. If we belong to Christ, then indeed we are Abraham's descendants and we are heirs according to the promise. And Paul concludes in chapter three, at the, at the end of chapter three, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Jesus. And this is where Paul can drop the pen or drop the mic or drop whatever he's got in his hand because at this moment, what he has done is reclaimed the good and beautiful gospel that through Christ, wherever you come from and whatever you have done and wherever you are currently located, what matters is our belief and our faith and our trust in what he has done for us. And Paul is addressing this to the churches who have been swayed into thinking that that's not good enough. And what they need to do is to add on to that through circumcision and law keeping and eating the right food. And what Paul is saying is, no, do not forget this Galatians. Do not be bewitched into thinking that it's about something different. Remember who you are and remember whose you are. Remember that you are heirs according to the promise. And Paul says, and I can show you that from the Old Testament itself, that this family of Gentiles and Jews all sitting at the table through Christ has been prophesied beforehand. This is the indicative that Paul is laying out and what we have been looking at over 12 weeks and what hopefully is taking root in our hearts and in our lives. Wherever we come from, wherever we have been, Jesus is the thing that unites us and when we believe in him, we are heirs, we are sons, and we are daughters. And even as I think about tomorrow, um, celebrating the life of Martin Luther King, uh, when I was a kid growing up, we didn't learn a whole lot about him. So I'm kind of getting into his writings now for the, for the first time as an adult. Um, but these are the things that, that he was after as well, understanding that um, equality and unity can be celebrated through Jesus. And hopefully, as we, we head into even thinking about that, that, that some of this indicative that Paul is laying out, even as a first century Jew, these are radical claims that still are meaningful for us today. But the indicative moves into the imperative. And for Paul, both of these things are rooted in the specific problems that were happening in the churches of Galatia. A lot of times when we read the Bible, we forget the contextual background of each story and just take these little uh, snippets and apply them immediately to our lives. And we forget what Paul is, is at pains to, to discuss. So for him, when he's talking about the indicative, he's talking about the problems within the Galatian churches. One of those problems is the factions and the dissension within this church. Some people are over here talking about circumcision and law keeping, and some people are over here following Paul's gospel, and maybe they don't even eat food together. There's, there's dissension and there's uh, disunity amongst the people, and Paul is trying to bring this back to tell them and to demonstrate to them that who you are matters in how you treat other people. And the imperative that we're gonna look at tonight, the, the commands and the things that Paul is, is starting to talk about, the way that we now live in light of this truth is rooted in some of these problems 
as well. Because of the factions and because of this disunity, Paul is, is telling us this message. For example, uh, in the beginning of, uh, or in the middle of chapter five, this is 5.13, it says, do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. We looked at this last week. Um, it says, do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh, rather serve one another humbly in love. And just real quick, as far as recap goes, we talked about this freedom because what Paul was being accused of as a teacher was, if it's just about Jesus, Paul, and the law doesn't matter, and you're trying to tell people that they don't need to be circumcised and they don't need to eat certain food and they don't need to observe the Sabbath, you're basically giving them a free-for-all. You have no structure in which they could be living. So Paul, what is it that you're trying to tell them to keep them reined in? And this is Paul addressing some of these concerns that he is an antinomian, that he is anti-law, that there are no, uh, there's nothing to tether these people. But what Paul says is, we are free through Jesus, but don't use your freedom, ace aformain, which is basically something, it's a military type term. Do not use your freedom as a staging ground for the battle of the flesh, so that the flesh can get, get ready to attempt to conquer the spirit or to conquer love. Do not allow yourself to be used in that way. Do not allow your freedom to be used to go against Jesus and against the spirit and against the things that God is doing because of your own selfishness and because of your own conceit and because of your own misguided ideologies. Now, what's, what's important for us to focus on here is when we think about do not use your freedom uh, to give this, this staging ground to the flesh, we immediately go to certain pet sins. We immediately go to perhaps sexual sins or the sins that we are uh, constantly warring against as individuals. But for Paul, it's not just that. Notice the next line. It says, don't use your freedom uh, to indulge the flesh or to give any sort of ground to the flesh as they are looking to go into battle, rather serve one another humbly in love. Become a servant, fighting for the unity across the aisles and attempting to, to dissolve the dissension and the discord between the factions of these people that are prevalent within the churches of Galatia. Paul says, don't use your freedom so that the flesh has an advantage, but serve one another in love. In fact, this is the preeminent command of the entire Old Testament, and it has been fulfilled in Jesus. Love your neighbor as yourself. And we talked about last week, just very briefly, this love your neighbor is not this uh, ethereal sort of philosophical claim that we hold. This has real roots in our lives the love that we demonstrate is a practical, it's a focus, it's a concentrated love that has real examples and is evident in people's lives. It's not just the talk that we talk on Facebook or on Twitter. It's not just the, the claims that we make. It's the things that we actually do. And this is what Paul is trying to move people towards. Serve one another in love. And he concludes this phrase, and we didn't talk about this much last week. If you do this, this will help to move us away from the fact that you might be biting and devouring each other. And if you are doing that, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. What Paul is at pains to talk about here, again, is those interrelational problems within the church where these people over here are viewed in such a way and these people are viewed in such a way and they do not meet in the middle to share food. They do not meet in the middle to celebrate Jesus. They do not meet in the middle for any reasons other than to fight each other. 
And for Paul, he's saying, if we would just serve one another, we can do away with that discord. He goes on in the text that we're going to look at specifically tonight. He says, so I say to you, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And then he goes on to talk about how the flesh and the spirit are at war with one another. They are completely antithetical to one another. And he begins to characterize the works of the flesh and the works of the spirit or the fruits of the spirit. And again, the way that we look at texts like this is we'll see this list. Some scholars would call this a vice list, the list on, at least on the, on the left-hand side. The, these are vices that Paul is wanting to point out. And we might go ahead and earmark a couple of them to say, well, I need to make sure that I don't do those sorts of things. And I've earmarked a couple of them for us tonight just because, and maybe this is me going back to my uh, middle school adolescent boy phase, but when we would look at these sorts of lists, these were the ones that seemed to stick out to us. Sexual immorality and impurity and debauchery, these are all sexual terms where Paul is trying to move people away from how they mistreat one another or how they're going beyond what God wants two people to do. Now understand that this first century Jewish culture is very different than a 21st century American culture. I was talking about this the other day. Most people got married when they were 15, 16, or something like that. And for us, in, in our cultural context, what we say is, don't look at that, don't touch that, don't do that until you get married, and you might be 28, 30, 40. Who knows? It's a totally different ballgame. That's not to lessen the commands here, but our context is very different than the context of the Bible. But we see these things, and a lot of times we say, well, they're the first ones that Paul is listing, so they must be of primary importance. So we start thinking about how, um, how important they are in the lives of believers. And I'm, I'm certainly not here to say that they're not important, but sometimes we place such an emphasis on these things that we lose track of what Paul is actually trying to discuss here in this particular passage. Now, having said that, my main aim tonight is for us to see that these are interrelational sort of things, and at the, at the core, what is at stake is the community and the unity therein. And we live in a moment, and I don't really want to address this other than just to, just to bring it up. We live in a moment uh, where we have hashtags like Me Too, and we have hashtags like Church Too, which to be quite honest, I'm petrified of, of looking at because of how uh, sexual abuse has inundated the church and to see the stories of people and the abuse that they have faced and how that has completely wrecked them. These are not sins that only affect us. Even in the quietness of our own room, these are not sins that only affect us. And even these sins here of sexual immorality and impurity and debauchery and to the bottom, the ones about drunkenness, um, the term orgies there is, is, is a bit over-translated perhaps. It means um, carousing or, or giving in to desires. I don't think it necessarily has to be sexual in nature, although I could be, I could be off on that. But here, I um, lost my train of thought. When you bring up uh, orgies there, it just, it just went in a, in a different, different direction. And I blame myself for that. Um, but here, uh, this is not just individual sinfulness. What Paul is, is trying to, to claim is that this is communal at the heart. And this is where American individualism has kind of taken us astray because the way that we do faith and the way that we do devotions and the way that we do spirituality is individualized. 
It's internal. It's we're in our prayer closet somewhere off to the side and that may or may not affect who we are in this community. But certainly, just looking at this list, sexual immorality and impurity and debauchery, it needs to be discussed. It won't be discussed today. And as I'm playing around with uh, ideas for the next sermon series that we're going to go to, I don't know if we want a sermon series on sexiness with, with Josh, but it needs to, to happen at, at some point. Matt's saying, no, absolutely not. Okay, I, I can hear that. Now, now look, we do have this, this vice list and we have these things that need to, be, need to be talked about, particularly because of the destruction that they are, are waging against people within the church. But for Paul, at least in this list, I want, I want to focus our attention here on these middle eight terms. Eight out of these 15 terms for Paul have to do with the interrelationships and how jacked up they are because of these factions and because of the discord and because of the disunity. He says, the work of the spirit, or the work of the flesh, excuse me, is clear. It's evident. It is plain to see. You do not need a PhD. You do not need to go back to the original Greek or the Hebrew. You can see when the flesh is at work. And while we focus on some of these obvious things, Paul is sneaking in some terms that I think a lot of us wrestle with. Hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy. Any sort of emotion that begins to put us in an us-them frame of reference are things that we need to be careful of. One scholar says Paul's concentration on these community-destroying behaviors, the ones in the green box that I just highlighted, that shows that his primary concern is for the unity and peace of the Galatian church. And I think it's important for us at the end of this list how Paul describes this. He says, I warn you as I did before. This is not a new piece of teaching that Paul is laying out to the people. He says, this is something that I told you when I was with you face to face. Do not forget this. But I warn you that those who live like this, from the top down, sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, but then also we have in that middle, dissension, jealousy, envy, fits of rage. I warn you that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. I don't want that to be lost on us. Because here in, in, this, in this room, I want us to have a, a frank conversation about holiness and what God is calling us to do. But I also want to see this in light of Paul's overarching concern that this is to preserve the unity and peace of the Galatian church. This is not solely about you in your closet at home while you're doing your devotions. This is not solely about that. This is something that has roots at the table and who you're including and who you're excluding. This has roots in the practical life that we live. When we say no to loving our neighbor, this is what Paul is attempting to lay out and here to emphasize. If this is the way that we live, it is not befitting of the kingdom of God. 
Now, in contrast to this, he would also say that the, the, um, the fruit of the Spirit is also obvious. Some people like to make a big deal of the fact that this is a singular fruit. I'd also like to point out that these lists are not exhaustive. These are not the only bad things that one can be involved in, nor are these the only good things that one can be involved in. But what Paul is saying is when we are living in accordance with the Spirit, these are the things that will show up in our lives. And he begins with love, taking us back to, to verse 13 and 14, where he says, this is the ethic that has been fulfilled in Jesus, that we will love our neighbor and that it has practical, tangible roots and that people can see it. That's the spirit working in and through us to demonstrate to the world that we are not giving a foothold to the flesh, but instead we are advancing the army of the spirit to wage war against all the things that defame who God is. This is why it's, it's, it's exciting in a sense that we are called to be a part of that, that we are called to be involved in that, to display love and joy and peace and forbearance and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control as a way of warfare where we are saying no to what the world has for us and we are advancing a different ethic, that we are bringing the kingdom of God here and now, allowing people maybe to experience a glimpse of heaven through the love and the joy that we are sharing with people. Again, this is not just about us. This is how it impacts the table. This is how it impacts our relationships. This is how it impacts the people that we live with and work with and the people that we are raising in our homes, parents. This is about how we are demonstrating to the world that something is different, that Jesus and his life and his death and his resurrection actually has made a difference in our lives. And it doesn't have to be the way that the world is, is, is showing us or telling us that we can live a different story. So this is what Paul aims to say. And here at, at the end, this, this brings us back to our point. He says, since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. These are about interrelational issues that people are having. And he's saying, as a follower of Jesus, Galatian church, live and walk with the Spirit so that we can promote a unity and a peace within this church as we destroy the walls that are building us up between our brothers and our sisters and even beyond. For Paul, this is what it seems to be about. A war is underway between the flesh and between the spirit. Some scholars would even say that this is not just about who we are made up as flesh and spirit. This is about two suprahuman entities, the flesh that is seeking to take hold and the spirit of the risen Christ that is warring against that. And we are involved in this battle. A war is underway and Galatian church and us, we are to remember who we are. And in this context, we should know that unity the unity of God's church is at stake. And some days, I don't think that we've gotten too much farther beyond the first century church in Galatia when it comes to fighting for unity. The war is underway. Remember who we are and fight for unity by displaying an ethic of love that cares for our neighbor and that demonstrates these fruit of the spirit that Paul is wanting to see in our lives.
Now, when I went to seminary, one of my professors used to say that commentaries, these are these big fat books that, that describe what's in the Bible that I spend a lot of time with week in and week out. He said, commentaries are a lot like traffic cops. When you need them, they are not there. I don't know if you've experienced this as a motorist, uh, but I've certainly experienced this as, as a pastor and as an interpreter of the Bible. When you need the commentators to say something, they're off talking about the Greek particle that has nothing to do with application or anything. It's just like the minutia of what's going on, which I'll, I'll, re I'll still read that excursus. I mean, between you and me, just because it's interesting, but it has nothing to do with how I live or how I uh, want you to live or the things that I talk about with you on most weeks. Sometimes we will get sidetracked a bit, but commentators don't always give us the things that we need to know or that we want to know. And especially looking at this passage this week, I found that most commentators were letting me down because as I was reading this, I had, I had questions that came to my mind. The most obvious is when Paul says, so I say, walk by the Spirit, as if we have a real idea about what Paul is talking about here or about how that is to happen. Like he just says, so I say, walk by the Spirit. And I'm, I'm wanting somebody to engage this question like, how? What does that look like? What are we supposed to do? Because deep down inside of me, I like laws. I like bullet points. I like lists. I've been begging Kate for years just to make a list of things I can do around the house just so I can check them off. That's how I operate. And she's like, well, you know if there's dishes in the sink, you should just do them. I'm like, yeah, but I need a list. Like this is a flaw within me, certainly, but the way that I live is I just want to know what do I need to do, Paul, to walk in the spirit? Give me a list just so I can wake up and check them off and do it. And I think in that he would say, bro, you're missing it. Because this is not what I'm talking. Remember, we are free in Christ. It's not about checklists and to-dos. It's not about administrative Mondays or Tuesdays. It's, it's, it's about like you, you get your life in order and you walk in the spirit. And Paul says, and there's freedom there. Isn't it beautiful? And I say, well, I mean, it could be. Yeah, if you, maybe you're a different you know, I'm, I'm INTJ, Paul. You know, I'm very type A, very anal. So I'm going to need a little bit more of this. I'm just asking how, or even in the, same, in the same verse, he says, so I say, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Easy, right? <laughs> Except for the fact that for most of us, if this is true, if we just walk in the spirit and we will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature, whatever that might be, whether it's the sexy stuff or the inner rage stuff or the drinking stuff or what have you, if that's the case, Paul, then why am I so caught up in sin? Why are there habits perhaps that I cannot break? Or for people in the room, like these patterns that we keep going back to, like moths to a flame, like why? Does it seem like there's such a hold on us? Why do we feel tethered to the things that we don't want to do when you're saying all we have to do is just walk by the Spirit? Give me something, Paul. But that's not what Paul is about. But I want to remind us here that when Paul is writing these letters, he's had conversations with people that we're not privy to. I imagine that someone within the church of Galatia, when Paul's talking about walking with the Spirit, they might raise their hand and say, Paul, can you explain that to me? Because I really don't know what you're talking about. And here, while we might not get a satisfactory list or to-do of what that looks like, 
we can at least look in this letter and see what Paul has said in the past. He's said things like this, and I want to remind us of the indicative. If we could just remember for a second who we are. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ and I don't live anymore, but Christ lives in me. And for the people in the room that understand the gospel and the people that have pledged themselves to that, that have pledged their allegiance to following Christ, this is true of us too. We have been crucified with Christ and we don't live anymore. Christ lives in us. So why then do we act like sin has such a hold on our lives? Why do we, and not only why do we act like that, why do we live like that? Why do we live uh, in such a powerless way when we understand that it's not us who lives anymore, it's Christ who is living in us? Paul continues, the life that I now live in my body, I live by faith. Indeed, I live by the faithfulness of God's son who loved me and gave himself for me. And I know that this is like easy peasy, but not really easy in our day-to-day lives. But if we remember the love that Jesus has for us and the sacrifice that he has made for us, and if we remember that we are living by faith in what he has done in his faithfulness, perhaps this can guide us and motivate us to move away from some of the patterns that we have set up for ourselves. Again, Paul says, if you belong to Christ and if anyone in this room has pledged allegiance to Jesus saying, I will follow you wherever you go. I believe that you are the son of God and that you have died and that you have rose again and I can follow you and I can be about the work that you're about here and now and I can fight for justice and I can include people and I can be someone who, who seeks restoration and reconciliation. I can talk about your redemption. If that's us, if we belong to Christ, then indeed we are Abraham's descendants, which was a huge uh, piece of teaching in the first century. But what Paul is saying is you are heirs according to the promise. You are not powerless. You are not without a promise. God is taking you somewhere through his son. Because you are sons and daughters, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. If we would just stop and remember when Paul says, walk in the spirit, that we have the spirit of the risen Christ in us, perhaps that would give us some power in thinking that it's not about how weak we are, but about how strong he is and he is living in and through us. I know that this is a bit more mystical than we usually get on a Sunday evening here at TRP, but I think this is such an important truth for us to understand that we as sons and daughters of the Most High God have the spirit of the risen Christ living and residing in us so that we can say no to the flesh and we can say yes and walk in lockstep with the spirit wherever the spirit is taking us. Finally, Paul says, this is in chapter five, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. This is weird for Paul to say because usually Jesus is the active agent in this crucifixion. We are crucified with Christ, but here it's saying the ones who believe in Christ Jesus, we have been about crucifying certain patterns ourselves. Most scholars, again, would say this goes back to your baptism, which makes baptism so much more meaningful and cool when you look back to it and say, I have been a part of this and I have crucified the sins and the flesh and its passions and desires. Not as though we're trying to do something ourselves, but we are becoming a part of God's movement in us. And we are saying, I have been crucified with Christ. And not only that, I have crucified 
the desires and the passions of the flesh. And that's evident in the decisions that I have made or in the allegiance that I am taking with Jesus. I know that we could parse that out theologically, but I don't, I don't want to uh, this evening. This is the indicative. These are the truths. And as Paul is moving in to the imperative, these are the things that we have to understand about who we are. And now I'm going to move into the imperative. Now, so what does it look like to walk in the spirit? And this isn't going to take too long. Okay, so just stick with me for about two more minutes. This is not going to be satisfactory. Are you ready? I've set myself up here, but this is not going to be your to-do list. This is not going to be a checklist. This is not going to be something that you can go home and say, okay, I'm going to tack this on the refrigerator. I'm just going to do this every day. This is not what, what Paul is saying, okay? And this is not what these commentators are saying either. Remember the traffic cops, they're not always there, but I found this, this to be kind of helpful. Scott McKnight says, we see something fundamentally important here in this passage as to how Paul depicts the Christian life. Now, this is, this is subtle how he says this. It's life in the spirit. It is life in the spirit, the life of a person who is surrendered to letting the spirit have complete control. One does not gain this by discipline or by mustering up the energy. One does not huddle with oneself in the morning. That's a funny image. Gather together his or her forces and charge onto the field of life full of self-determined direction. This is not about self-will and self-determination. This is not about discipline in this sense. When we talk about living in the spirit, what we think we have to do is to, is to do all this work. But what Paul is saying is something so much more subtle. He says, rather, the Christian life is a life of consistent surrender to the Spirit. I told you this wasn't satisfactory because we want more to do. But I think what Paul is asking us to do is to wake up with the idea that each day is not ours it's God's and the Spirit working in and through us. I think what Paul is asking us to do is to be cognizant that in each situation, the Spirit can have complete control over what it is that we are to do, who we are to care for, who we are to love, how that should happen. I think what Paul is asking us to do is to be open and to be aware of the move of the Spirit and then to actually obey and go where the Spirit is guiding us to go. We've all been in those situations where you feel a tug or you feel a pull and you could go this way if you say, nope. It's not just about being so mystical that we don't make choices anymore, but what Paul is saying is you don't need a law. You don't need a to-do list. What you need to do is to follow the Spirit, to live a life of complete and utter surrender. This is the life that we should be living. And this is not the life that is easy for me. This is a do as I say, don't do as I do sort of a moment, which is never a good thing for a pastor to do. But let's, let's try, let's a, do as Paul says together. We'll all struggle and we'll, we'll go in that direction. It's a life of surrender. It's a life of trust. And these are not things that are inherently easy for us to do because we want to be in control. We want to be the ones who are driving the bus. Maybe very literally. Some of us, when we sit in the passenger seat, it's like all we can do to not like grab the wheel. This is how we are in our spiritual lives as well. We have to live a life of surrender, a life of trust, a life of prayer, where we're actually engaging the Spirit to say, whatever it is that you want to do in and through me today, do it. Open my eyes, because you know I'm not with it all the time. Open my eyes to see the needs of the people and let me be Christ to them, because it's no longer me who lives. It's Christ who lives in and through me. Maybe even beginning with that simple prayer is something that could put us on this trajectory. It's a life of openness where it's not just about the plans that we have, but sometimes those plans get derailed. 
I was having lunch with a friend the other day and we, we were leaving the, the building and I was trying to invite him to the Derek Webb concert and, and then some woman came up and said, hey, I'm not, I don't need money, but I just need a ride. Uh, it was like half a mile down the street. And before I could even open my mouth, um, my friend said, yeah, I can do that. It's an openness to, uh, his schedule did not include taking random person half a mile or so down the street. He would have taken her 10 miles down the street though because I know that's the type of person that he is, but it's an openness to being present and being used in those situations. It's a life of openness and it's a life of love. The last thing though that we need is more people typing on their keyboards about how they love everybody and then not actually loving anybody. What the church needs desperately, especially in light of all of the scandals and all of the ways that the church has abused and hurt people, is a community of folks who care about unity and peace and who demonstrate that by the love that they have for other people, not just in rhetoric, not just in the things that we say, but in the practical, concentrated, and well-resourced ways that we can actually step in and love people all over this room and all over the, the roles of TRP, we've got people who have church hurt. We've got people who have church baggage. We have people that have felt the abuse of power in this place. And it's not difficult to conflate those issues with Jesus. And the church hurt becomes the Jesus hurt. And what those people need, in my humble opinion, is the church to be something different, something better, something that demonstrates a walking in concert with the Spirit, a life of surrender and trust and openness. And I think what Paul is saying is if we do that, there is no way that we can be selfishly motivated to go after sexual immorality and debauchery and impurity and hatred and envy and drunkenness, if we can really walk with the Spirit and if we can be committed to loving our neighbor, there is no way that our life will be characterized by the things on the left side of that screen. And my hope for us as a church, and we'll close with this, my hope for us as a church is that we become a people who model the fruit of the Spirit. And not just on our own, but within the life of the community. Love and joy and peace and forbearance. And people can see that. And that's the thing that is used to bring us together in unity and peace. It's not just about us as individuals, but it's about us collectively as a community of God to do the great work that he is wanting so desperately for us to do. Thanks again for listening. We invite you to join us in Salisbury for one of our weekly services on Sunday evenings at 5.30 p.m. Whatever your story, there's room for you here. Again, if you'd like more information, please visit our website at restoresby.org. See you next week.